Okay. Exodus 19. All right, so Israel, if we're going to do a quick recap of where we've been, Israel has been redeemed. What does it mean? Let me just briefly tell me. What's it mean that God has redeemed the Israelites? It's that word. It's like a big word we toss around a lot in layman's terms. What's it mean? What happened? He freed them. He freed them. He saved them. Yeah, so he brought them out of Egypt, right? That's what happened through the first... 18 chapters of Exodus. So they were slaves in Egypt, and God redeemed them by his own hand and then brought them out of Egypt. And they have now arrived at the beginning of chapter 19 at Mount Sinai. So they are safely out of Egypt, and the entire orientation of their lives has changed and is about to change. Remember, their physical deliverance, we talked about this several times, but their physical deliverance from slavery is a picture of our spiritual deliverance from sin. So we see this physical story taking place, and it's really a picture of our spiritual story. So if we were to spiritually compare this point in Israel's journey to that of a believer today, it would be equivalent, I think, to someone who has recently come to faith in Christ. So the point that the Israelites are at at this point, they've not known God very long. They've not been redeemed very long. They're just getting to know him. So they're at the start of their faith journey, and it might be equivalent to somebody asking the question, what do I do now? You know, what what now that I'm saved? How does this change things? How am I supposed to live as a result of my salvation? And a popular question, and one I still feel like we ask all the time is, does God have a purpose for me? You know, I still ask that question sometimes, like, am I living your purpose? What am I supposed to be doing right now? But Especially maybe you would see a new believer that might be going, well, well, does God even have, does God have a purpose for me? I mean, that's kind of striking to think about that. And what we're going to see tonight is that the answer is yes. God absolutely has a purpose for all believers. He had a purpose for saving Israel. And within that, we're going to see that he has a purpose for saving us. There is reason behind it. It's not just so that we can go to heaven. There is purpose for our salvation today. So, Um, Your first principle is right now. So I usually try to operate by giving three principles that kind of sum things up for the night. So your notes page, you actually can go to the, um, right before this, you have a whole page dedicated to it on page three, where you can take notes tonight. And then later we'll get back to page seven. But first principle is pretty simple. Salvation is for service. That's what we're going to see. Salvation is for service. Salvation is for service. You've been saved to serve. But the good news is there's no one more worthy of serving than the God who saved us. He is not a vicious taskmaster like Pharaoh was, but he is a compassionate loving, just, faithful, almighty, sovereign savior who unconditionally loves us. So we have this amazing God that we get to serve. That's the good news behind it. God um, had been at this point in Israel's history, he had been revealing himself to the Israelites for probably a little over a year at this point. When you take into the account 
how we talked about with the plagues, like there were different seasons that these plagues would have had to have happened in. You read different commentaries, they're gonna differ. Some say that plagues happened really fast, but I tend to believe that they happened over maybe a time period of months. You know, maybe there were several seasons that went by um, within that. So if you count that time, and then the time that's taken place from the time that they left Egypt to the point of Mount Sinai now, I think it's maybe been a little over a year at this point that God has been really showing up in their life and showing himself in very big ways. Uh, and I just think it's so kind of God to first, if you think about this, prove himself worthy of their affection and of their allegiance and of their service before requiring any sort of obedience from them. Just think about how he's revealed to them, revealed himself to them already, and he's not yet required obedience other than saying things like, you need to go out and get your manna every day, and on the sixth day, you're gonna wanna get twice as much, right? Or you're gonna wanna put blood on the doorpost because that's gonna save your firstborn child. You know, so he's given them those, but he has not commanded obedience yet. Not like he's going to within this new covenant relationship that's going to form. But I think it's really cool that first he just revealed himself to them in so many different ways. We've already seen that he's revealed himself as a provider. You know, he's revealed himself um, as a sustainer. Um, He's revealed himself as a savior. So they've gotten to know him first before God has required any obedience. Now, both Moses and the Israelites then have seen some really incredible monumental, that's what I like to call them, monumental spiritual moments. I think we could all agree on that. They have witnessed a lot. They have seen some pretty cool things. Uh, So let's, if you want to turn to page seven, you're going to go ahead and fill out one of your answers. (coughs) I think it is your first question on page seven. And it says, looking back at chapters 3 through 18, make a brief list of the many wonders Moses and the Israelites had already experienced. So they've had these incredible monumental spiritual moments. And just by way of review, let's just throw out what some of these moments could have been for either Moses or either and the Israelites. There's There's a big list here. So you can just say them, whatever you're thinking. The plagues. That was huge. And you you can think about the water being turned to blood. I mean, we don't have to list all of them, but the locusts, the hail. I mean, they saw some incredible things with those plagues. And they experienced the first three, and then they watched from afar, protected from the others. Except then they had to participate in the tenth one with the blood on the doorposts. What else? What are some other... How did it start for Moses? The parting of the Red Sea. The parting of the Red Sea. Can you imagine? Like, what a monumental spiritual moment that would have been for these people. Seeing the Red Sea part. What else? The manna. The manna. Yeah. And that is daily happening, even while they are at Mount Sinai. So, well, I was thinking about that today. That the morning that they made the golden calf, manna fell that morning. You know, I've never thought about that before. Yes, big one. Man, they're seeing the manna daily. What else? What are some other monumental spiritual moments? You mentioned earlier 
Yes. You can only imagine as a mother, just that whole night. And then can you imagine then walking out of Egypt as a free person? What a monumental spiritual moment that would have been. Yes, so twice they have witnessed the, the provision of water. There was the bitter water that was made sweet, and then there's been water from the rock. What about for Moses? How did it all start? The burning bush. Yeah, what a moment that was for him to be called by God from this bush that was burning but not consumed. It's pretty cool. Um, the fact that they have the pillars to guide them. Yes, I didn't even write that one down. The pillar of fire by day, no, night, fire by night and cloud by day. Yes, the, yeah, the glory of God is being revealed to them tangibly every single day. There's a lot of monu- I would, that I would consider just monumental spiritual moments. Now these don't, monumental spiritual moments don't tend to come every day, except that for the Israelites, it kind of feels like it is coming every day <laughs> for them. See, sometimes I'm like, that's not fair. I would have experienced that, but I don't want to go down that road. My Sunday school teacher growing up always told me, you don't want fair, you want mercy. So there you go. I'm just going to remind you all right now, you don't want fair, you want mercy. Now, as I thought about this, though, and I thought about all these different monumental spiritual moments, I couldn't help but ask myself the question, what are my monumental spiritual moments? Have I had any? And my, I have had some, and I'm sure that all of you have had some as well. I'm hoping maybe something comes to mind and a couple of you wouldn't mind sharing um, but, you know, I came to faith as a little girl, and so really I, I didn't have a, a saving faith, monumental spiritual moment. Um, it was just the way I was brought up. I was brought up, and God was real, and Jesus was, you know, died on the cross for me. And, um, but I definitely had a time when I was in college when the Lord and I needed to make a decision as to how I was going to live my life, and not that I was really living in that much of a wrong way, but... He wants your whole heart, right? And uh, I remember there was one evening where it was definitely a monumental spiritual moment between me and the Lord. I will save that story because it's a long story. But another one that I thought of recently, a few months ago, Craig and I went to the funeral of um, a youth pastor that we had ministered under as youth leaders. And it was just crazy to think that he was gone. And it just really seemed unfair because he had an active ministry and God was using him. And you just think, why, Lord? Like, why did you take this man? Why did you, you know, he's left behind now um, a wife and two daughters that just really need him too. And I was kind of arguing about it with God and during my morning quiet time and just putting out there how I felt. And I looked down at my Bible and I started reading the passage that I was supposed to read for that day. I read through the Bible last year, so I was just reading through what I was supposed to read that day. And I read Luke 20, 38. And it said, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to Him. And it smacked me in the face. 
and I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. It was just one of those like powerful moments where you just read a verse and you're just like, whoa. You know, like just the holiness of God just kind of leapt off the page at me like a little bit in a little ways like little girl, shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. But I am not the God of the dead. I am the God of the living. And it was really cool. Um, also very humbling. And we're, when we talk about the holiness of God next week, I can kind of like feel that in that moment. Um, so maybe it was like a, maybe you guys have had an experience like that, like a verse just jumped off the page at you. Or I also gotten a couple times I've gotten a text message that was like perfect timing and it, God can use anyone. And if God put something on somebody's mind and they sent it to me and it was like, like, how did they know that I needed to hear that right this very moment? So anything come to mind? Did you guys think about your own monumental spiritual moments that you've had just when God is speaking to you? Then I'll share one. I can think of one. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think we all do that where we, like, talk to God if you want to try to, like, negotiate, even though we know mm -hmm. that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I definitely have been in that position before and I was like just like upset kind of like that about stuff and I was like praying about it and praying about it and um, I think I already got my answer like my answer was to do whatever I was praying about but I was like yeah not really though right, right. <laughs> and um, yeah people say like I've never had God like obviously talk out loud to me you know because I'm like Nicole but um, I was praying about it and I just like overwhelmingly like it, it stopped me in my tracks it was like did I not command you and I was like, like I just remember feeling that in my soul and I was like okay I'm gonna shut up and I feel like I'm gonna cry because I'm like overwhelmed but in a good way but yeah. Yeah, it was really nice because then you like I just think about it in the bible too like I would not say that to myself like did I not command you would never pass through like me you know right. what I mean so yeah that was cool that is really cool yeah I love that I've had that too where I've been praying and then realized like convicted, like I think I've already given you the answer. You just don't want to listen. Okay, right. <laughs> I told you, you know, my favorite Bible verses: "Be still and know that I am God." I've had it different times, and it always is the same thing. Which I laughed the first time I met all of you ladies. I said, "That's telling me to shut up and listen," mm. and that's exactly when I get it. It's when I need mm. to shut up and just mm. listen. Mm -hmm.
verse literally says, and it's red print, he who has an ear, let him hear. just God will press it on my heart mm. to reach out to someone to send mm. a text or to call and then they will say oh you don't even know you know it was the right time I needed to hear that I need to hear from you those were the right words or that was the right scripture mm. so I think it's just I try to pray every morning like God help me to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading I feel like he leads us every day but mm -hmm. we let the busyness of our mind get in the way of the day definitely so it's like just let me be aware of what you're trying to do but yeah I, I've been very blessed that way just from different people yeah. saying so I really try to be obedient when I get that nudge yeah because then I know when I hear back from people it's like yes I really need to hear that or I, I need love to hear that. from you Mm -hmm. or those words were what I needed. So, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So I love that. Absolutely. Anybody else? Okay. Well, I do think that the arrival here at the start of chapter 19 for Moses was another monumental spiritual moment. I think this was a very big moment for him. Why would this have been a very big moment for him? Does anybody have any guesses why Israel's arrival at Mount Sinai would have maybe been very impactful for Moses? You're going to have to really think back if you are going to think the right answer. <laughs> well, back at the burning bush, God made Moses a promise in Exodus 3.12. And he said to him, when Moses, you know, was really scared about, like, I can't do this. How is this going to work? And he's got all of his rebuttals, you know. God says to him, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And they were back. This mountain is where the burning bush was. And they were back. And Moses had all of the Israelites with him, young and old, everybody. And I just imagine, like, I don't think Mo Moses obviously didn't forget that because he wrote it down for us, you know. And just to get back there and be like, he did it. God did it. And what a way that he did it. I mean, more than Moses, I'm sure, ever bargained for. But there they were at Mount Sinai just as God had promised. So let's read verse 1 of chapter 19. We're going to go through the first six verses tonight. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. We're in wilderness a lot. He really wants us to know we're in the wilderness. Okay. <laughs> there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. Okay, we're going to stop there for now. 
So it says the third new moon. So it has been three months since they have left Egypt. And it says on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So one of the commentaries I read said it's the exact day. Like it's three months to the day. Probably is. three. It's because it says on that day. And that just reminds me that we serve a God of absolute perfect timing. So we're all probably waiting on something. I feel like I'm always waiting on something, right? And I have to remember, no matter how long I wait, he is the God of perfect timing, always. He knows exactly when and how things need to, ha to happen. And so what we see here is a picture that Israel is going to camp down below while Moses goes up to God. It said while Moses, so the Israelites camped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And what I love about this is it's like Moses is like, I'm back home. And he like goes straight up to me with God. Like you might just go knock at the neighbor's door and he's just going to go talk to God. But I love that familiarity. Like that's what I want for each one of us. Like the moment you get back home, the moment you get up in the morning and you're like, here I am Lord. Like I'm back. And we're going to talk. You know, we're going to chat. That's kind of the visual. I don't know what it was like, but that's the visual that was running through my head as I read verse 3. Moses just goes on up to God, and they're going to have a chat. Now, this isn't just a quick stop at Mount Sinai for Israel either. So to set the scene, um, if you want to jot down on your notes, Numbers 10, 11. That's a good reference. That's even a good one just to, like, jot in the side of your Bible, Numbers 10, 11, at this because if we compare this text to Numbers 10, 11, we can see that the Israelites were at Mount Sinai for 11 months. So you're going to stay here for a little while. Numbers 10, 11. Yep. So any idea why they're going to have to be here for a while? Probably disobeying. Disobeying. Yeah, they are going to disobey. True. <laughs> yeah. They have a lot of information to receive. So while they're here at Mount Sinai, they're going to receive the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, which is what we're talking about in, on the third week, so two weeks from tonight. They're going to receive the civil law, which is how they're going to act as a nation. They've, never, they've been a people, but they've never been a nation. So they're going to have to receive the civil law that judges are going to use to make judgments, and just how you, how you interact. How are you supposed to interact with God? How do you interact with each other? What does God require? And then they're going to receive the ceremonial laws. So the, the, when we talk about the law, it really has three different parts. It has the moral, it has the civil, and it has the ceremonial. So the um, ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ. He fulfilled every single one of those. So we're not out there sacrificing little lambs anymore because that is done. He finished that. The civil law, uh, we are not a nation. We do not follow Israel's civil law, although it does have great points for us and great value to it for us to learn from. We're not under that nation. We are a nation under God, but we are not God's nation. So we do not follow the civil law. However, the moral law is still in place. And the Lord took it even farther, which we'll study when we get there, um, and definitely the Sermon on the Mount. And so we'll see that, that the moral law is still very much in effect in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So they're going to receive all of this in 11 months, 
They're also going to receive all of the instructions for the tabernacle and they're going to build it all while they are here, 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 but all while they're camped at Mount Sinai. That's so, yeah. Yep. They're the priesthood. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So they've yes. got to get all of that instruction. And that's a that lot. Lo that alone is a lot. It's a lot. I know. So technically, actually, you have from now all the way through Numbers chapter 10, all takes place at Mount Sinai. So the rest of Exodus, as well as the entire book of Leviticus, because that's all about the priests and all about the laws. And then up to the first 10 chapters of Numbers all take place here. If you want like a visual picture of what's going on at, for Israel at that time. So they're here for a while. Um, but they had a lot of instructions to get while they were here. So by the time we uh, get through all of this information, well, even before that, okay, it's going to take a couple of chapters, but in chapter 24 is actually when they are going to ratify this new covenant. So you've probably heard of the Sinaitic Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. People refer to it as that. This, this is what we're talking about, these laws. It, Israel is going to enter into a new covenant relationship with the Lord that says they're going to obey the moral law and they are going, we're going to do all of it. They're really certain of it. And they're, they're going to, you know, obey the civil laws and they're going to obey the ceremonial laws. So when we get to chapter 24, we're going to see them say yes. And we're going to see the covenant ratified. And then we're going to see a really cool thing happen where they actually, 70 of the elders, Moses and Aaron, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, actually get to see God. It actually says, and they saw God. It's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> so cool. So at that point is when this new covenant is actually ratified. But at this point, God is just bringing them here and saying, all right, here's the deal. We have some things to talk about, and there's going to be some obedience that's required for this relationship. Okay, so let's move on and see what the Lord now says. You know, Moses went up and rang the doorbell, and God was like, oh, hey. And then he says to Moses, the Lord called to him, I'm in verse 3, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Okay, we're going to stop there, because there's some really cool things here. So what does God want Moses to tell the people first? How's he begin? What's he, what's he say? Go and tell them, go and remind them what? God is good. He is good. Yep, absolutely. Why? Because he said, I'm here. Yes, I brought you out. Go and remind them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You saw it. You witnessed it. And you saw how I, what's the imagery that he gives us there? Carried you on eagle's wings and brought you where? To myself. To myself. How cool is that? That God brought them to himself. We could probably spend a whole night on just that alone. I mean, the whole picture there is of 
of our God redeeming us to bring us to himself. That is so cool. But this imagery of of bearing you on eagle's wings or carrying you on eagle's wings is also really neat. Little eaglets can stay in the nest for a really long time. Maybe some of you know this. I don't know. It's new to me. But they can be in the nest for up to 100 days. It's a long time. You know, like in the spring, usually little birdies, they're, they're so tiny, and then they're just all of a sudden gone. You know, they just fly away. But little eaglets can stay in the nest for up to 100 days. And then when it comes time for the eaglets to fly, the mother actually kicks them out of the nest, and then she hovers over the top of them and watches and waits. And if any of them have any trouble at all, she swoops down and gets them on her back and carries them to safety, back to the nest. And then maybe they wait a little while and eventually they try again. And she does the same thing. She kicks them out when she decides it's time. And if they're struggling at all, she swoops down and picks them up and then takes them back to herself. That's the imagery that the Lord is giving the Israelites, write down Deut- Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12, because God actually describes this imagery. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12, he says to Israel, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wing to catch them and carries them aloft, the Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. See how God described that? That was Deuteronomy what? 32, 11, and 12. Thank you. Yep. What a beautiful picture that is. And that's really a picture of salvation. We have nothing to do with it. It is God carrying us to himself. It is him redeeming us. It is him saving us. It is him maybe kicking us out of the nest. (laughs) And then... You know, sometimes some people's salvation stories are his life is just falling apart. They've been kicked out of the nest, and then the Lord just swoops in and carries them to himself. It's just a really cool imagery. We have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. It's all God doing it for us. So here's your second principle. God saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. God saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. God saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. God saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. You see that? We have the saving first, we have the redeeming first, and then we have the call to live for him. First, God rescues us from sin, then he teaches us how to live for his glory. So these people were not saved by their works, not at all. It was definitely God that brought them out of Egypt, but they were saved to work. That is why they were saved. If you remember, over and over, what did Moses say to Pharaoh? God told Moses to say, let my people go so they may serve me. Let them go so they may serve me. There was a purpose and a reason behind it every single time that Moses went before Pharaoh. All right. Verse 5, chapter 19, verse 5. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed, the Lord is still talking to Moses, telling him what to say. So now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, it's going to be this new covenant that's going to get established. Keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, pretty cool. So he starts now by saying, all right, obedience is going to be required if you obey my voice and you keep my covenant. You keep all the things that we're going to talk about. Then what does God promise them? Three different things. And this is actually question eight. No, question three on the top of page eight. If you want to go ahead and answer it. What three things does God promise if they obey here? Yep, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be my treasured possession. A royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Yep. Well, it, well, does yours say royal? No. Well, like First Peter says royal. We're not there yet, Tony. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yes, a kingdom of priests. Yes. She knows where we're headed. A kingdom of priests. Yes. And what's the other one? Holy a holy nation. Yes, so those are the three promises that God makes to them. So treasured possession, the word for that is like a king's private treasury. It's his very personal treasury. David uses the word in 1 Chronicles 29.3 to refer to his own silver and gold that he is going to dedicate for the temple. He talks about it being his own personal treasure. And so you get this picture here, this treasured possession of like, you're going to be what's in my safe. You know, like you're my very treasured possession. I think about it as the thing you're going to grab if the house is on fire. What are you going to take with you? What is your treasured possession? That's how I see this here. God's like, you, I am taking you. You will be my treasured possession. And then we have this promise that they will be well, first we have kingdom of priests, but we'll get to that. They're going to be a holy nation. What does holy mean? Set apart. Set apart. Yep. So they are going to be set apart for God, for service to God, by being a kingdom of priests. An entire kingdom of priests. Everyone. That's what's implied here. Everyone being a priest. So you guys see God's plan here? The whole nation. So the job of a priest, well, what's the job of a priest? We know some of the job. What, is, what did priests do? They talk to God. That's right. The mediator. The go-between. So the priest talked to God on behalf of the people and might also receive, well, a prophet would definitely receive the word from God and then tell it to the people. So he acted as a mediator. He was also, in Malachi, we learned that they were to teach the word. So priests were to teach the word help people understand the word and sacrifices is another thing that they had to do these are the jobs of the priests so i think the main thing is what shay is saying here they're like the representative they are the representative of god to the people 
and they're, they're that go-between. So now look at question four on page eight. It says, in Genesis 12, three, God promised Abraham that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So how does Exodus 19, five through six, shed light on how God planned to use the Israelites to accomplish that promise? Any thoughts? God said, I'm gonna, in you, all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed. Well, we know that later on, when we get to New Testament, it's the seed of Christ from Abraham that is going to bless them. But do you see any other connection that possibly could be made here? How might God plan to bless the, all the nations through them? Go ahead. Um, well, I don't know. Well, if, I they're, huh? if they're acting as priests, right? I mean, they're the writers of the Old Testament, so like they're spreading the word of God yes. to everyone. Yes, exactly. So I see here that God planned to use the Israelites to spread his salvation and his fame and his glory to all the nations. You're going to be my kingdom of priests so that everybody can learn about me, so that you can bless, so that in you all the families of the earth can be blessed. Because we know it's a blessing to know God. We know it's a blessing to have a relationship with him. So... I see God's design here of this kingdom of priests, everybody, who are sharing the word, teaching the word, showing the other nations his glory. Now, when we get to the, priests, the priesthood here in a few weeks, and we actually see their clothing, and we see God's design, there's going to be a lot of meaning in that. But that is not what God means. God did not want all of them walking around in robes with an ephod on their chest. <laughs> okay, we'll learn what an ephod is later. That's not what he wants. His purpose in saying this is, I saved you so that you could be a nation of people, all of you, who can go out and constantly declare the glory and goodness of who I am by the way you talk, by the way you act, by how you respond, by how you live in a world that's always a little bit off kilter, by how you interact with other nations, you are going to be a kingdom of priests that shows the whole world my glory. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So they were to be a people always pointing back to the creator with every breath that they took. So with that in mind, can you imagine then the effect on a broken world if and when there was ever an entire nation of God-following priests? Like actual, true, godly priests? Right. An entire nation. What would the effect of that be? Huge. Huge. The whole world. I think the whole, I mean, obviously we're sin. We're, we're all sinners, and so people are going to turn away from God, but just could the whole world come to know the Lord if there was actually a nation of God-honoring priests, I think it'd be huge. Yet this was this here, we see right here, this is God's plan, this is God's desire for the nation, to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests so that they might know even the blessing of sharing God's love. There's a lot of joy. Go ahead, Sheila. Well, it, it, this just came to my mind, you know, my mind. <laughs> I love your mind. Anyway, um, look at the impact, the Damar, the, his, 
that, True. what an impact that had yes. on people in general, let alone a nation. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That was one incident, one person. Yeah, one person, one there at the right place, wrong place, whatever you want to yes. think. But look at the impact that had yes. on everyone. For sure. I mean, I think that's a great point. And that's one person. And God is saying to them, I want you to be an entire nation yeah, exactly. of priests that are proclaiming who I am to the whole world. Absolutely. And then the rest of the world can have their own monumental spiritual moments, right? Because God's going to be faithful to make himself known to them as they go out and <clears throat> seek to display and talk about his glory. But did they do it? No. No, they failed miserably in doing this. They forsook, forsook God for idols. They set aside his laws, we're going to see, and they made up their own. And it doesn't take long at all for them to do this. <laughs> it's a matter of days. And they get pulled in by the world instead of pulling the world toward God. The, the goal was for them to pull the world toward God, but they just got pulled into the world instead. And that's often our mistake too, I think. So what is God's solution? Who does he send? Israel failed. They couldn't do it. Who does he send? Jesus. Jesus! The Sunday school answer. Yes. He sends Christ, his son, who perfectly fulfills every role Israel didn't. He does it perfectly. Now turn to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And I think you'll see it all come together. You probably all know this verse. <laughs> That's right. 1 Peter 2, 9. First Peter 2, 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So whose responsibility is it to now be the kingdom of priests? The church. It's us. It is our responsibility. This is God's plan now for the church to be a kingdom of priests, not just the pastoral staff. You know, I like to pass on the responsibility whenever I can, but this time I cannot pass on the responsibility. It is God's plan for all believers to be a part of the priesthood, to be a part of showcasing his glory to the rest of the world, to be a part of sharing God's word, teaching God's word, making disciples. That's all things that like a pastor would do, but we're part of the priesthood. We are to, um, so when actually when the high priest walked around, he looked absolutely fabulous. Like we'll talk about his clothing, but he was quite dapper in all of his jewels and his big hat that says holy to the Lord. And, you know, he's got all kinds of beautiful stuff on. But the neat thing about that is somebody would look at him and be like, he represents God. Well, now that's our job, only without the clothing, for someone to look at us and go, oh, they represent God. 
I want to, I'm going to go talk to them because I, I need what they have in my, I need that in my life. You know, they just see it so much. It was so evident. So this is us. This is every believer saved to serve, saved to proclaim the gospel and the excellencies. I love the way that verse puts it. Saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who <coughs> called you out of darkness. He called you. He brought you on eagle's wings out of darkness into his marvelous light. Pretty cool. So here's my question. How's that going? <laughs> How's it going being part of the royal priesthood? I love here that God adds royal to it. You know, you are part of the king of kings family now. And so you are not just the priesthood, but you are the royal priesthood. How is that going? Have you been pulled into the world or are you pulling the world toward God? I think that's the big question. I think one of the ways that we help the world see God is by our, in our lives, keeping the first things first. Every time I heard that song when I'm in the car, I'm like, that's it. We have to keep the first things first. If you start getting sucked in by the world, they don't see God anymore. They don't see the priesthood in us. They just see the world. Uh, okay, so I thought, of, I thought of two questions that could kind of test yourself. And I, I told Craig these questions, and he goes, ouch, <laughs> yeah, you're harsh. I'm like, well, and then I felt like I got a little clarity this morning because I was reading in Colossians, and Paul says in Colossians 1.28 that you are to warn and teach. So I was like, okay, see, I'm going to teach and I'm going to warn. It's going to be a little bit of both, all right? So here's a test that I think you can do. Ask either your kids or a close friend or a grandchild or whoever you want, a best friend, somebody. Ask them what they think is the most important thing to you. What's the most important thing to me? Oh, I think asking like a younger person would be very telling if you have yeah, a younger sure, person yes, in your life. Because your best friend might be like, well, I know you really love Jesus. <laughs> yes, but do you see that as the most important thing to me? What, is, what do you think is the most important thing to me? Is it making money? Is it having a clean house? Is it having well-behaved children? Is it... I don't know, not missing my favorite show, is it my alone time, you know, exercising, spending time on my phone, what is it? What do you think is the most important thing to me? Or does their answer have anything to do with the Lord? I think that's kind of a good test to see, like, are we keeping the first thing first? Because the first thing needs to be that we are serving Jesus. That's, what, that's why we're saved. Okay, here's the second question then you can ask. Then say, uh, okay, what do you think I want most for you? What do you think I want most for you? Or another way to put it is, what is my hope for you? What do you think I want the most for you? So if it were my kids, maybe they would say, well, I think you really want me to get good grades. Is that the most important thing that I want for you? Is that what you see me displaying the most? Or I've re you really want us to be good at sports? Oh, is that what you're getting from my behavior? Is that I really care about sports most of all? 
or Aiden's getting close to college, is it that I get a scholarship? You know, is that the most important thing to your dad and I? Uh, or is it that you grow up and make lots of money? Is that what we're portraying to them? No, we want him to know Jesus. We want him to know Jesus. You've got a girlfriend. Right. Is their answer, yeah, mom, I know that you just want me to bring glory to God. That's what we want. That's the kind of life that we want to be living. So that that's just, oh, yeah, I, I know what you want for us. You want us to be a part of the church and serve the Lord. And I don't want them to just rattle it off in a nonchalant way. But you get, you get what I'm saying. It, want, it needs to be so evident. And if it's not evident, maybe there needs to be a little reorientation of what's the most important. What's the first things? How do you keep the first things first? So we're going to wrap it up here. And I'm going to read to you guys, if you want to jot down, Colossians 2, 2 and 3. Um, it is my hope for you guys. If you were to ask me, what is your hope for me I would, the Lord showed me this verse sometime this last year, and this would be my answer to you. Colossians 2, 2 and 3. My hope for my Bible study women is that, verse 2, their hearts may be encouraged. That's my hope for you. That your heart would be encouraged being knit together in love. I hope that you feel united. I hope that this brings the church together more to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. There's so many riches. I want you to reach new riches in the understanding of God's word and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, I love this, in whom, we're talking about Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's just so much treasure. We are going to unearth a lot of treasure over the next eight weeks. It's going to be really cool. There are so many neat things in the tabernacle. And my prayer for you guys, and my hope for you guys, is you're going to get to the end of the study, and then you're going to look at this and go, yeah, yeah, I found some new treasure. And maybe that prayer of mine, I pray, will be answered, that you have grown closer to Christ, that you have been encouraged, and you have <clears throat> grown in your understanding, your knowledge of this mystery of Christ, in whom are all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. Pretty cool verse. And that's, again, that's Colossians 2, 2, and 3, if you would want to pray that for somebody else. But why is that my hope for you? It's because I want you to be equipped to fulfill your purpose in Christ. I want to equip you so that you can go out and declare the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what I want you to be able to go and do so that you can go and reach the nation, so you can go and sit at your kitchen table. That's where you can practice being the priesthood, with your kids. It's every believer's job to preach in this world. We are all preaching something. Some of us just aren't preaching the right things. <laughs> I don't always preach the right things. <laughs> every, in any given moment, we're all preaching something, though we're not necessarily all to do it from the pulpit. I don't think, personally, women should be leading the church on Sunday mornings. We can get into that another day. I am very thankful for Pastor Mike and the leadership that we have in this church. And God has put him in that position for a reason. He's doing a fabulous job. But we have a responsibility too, to preach as we just go out into the world or as you sit at your table or as you work or as you're in your kids' bedrooms. 
or as you're talking to the neighbors, whatever it might be, you can think of yourself as priesthood. I'm a part of the royal priesthood. So here's your last principle. The way we live is part of God's plan for saving the world. It's pretty cool. The way we live is part of God's plan for saving the world. The way we live is part of God's plan for saving the world. So cool how he uses us. It's just so amazing that this was even his plan to begin with. Like, who would want to use us? But we get to be a part of this royal priesthood that is going to declare the excellencies of Christ. So this week, I want you to think about yourself as part of the royal priesthood. That is your assignment. Even if you need to make yourself a little nameplate that says, Holy to the Lord, like the priest Lord, you have my permission, and then please send me a picture because I really want to see it. Think of yourself as the royal priesthood. <clears throat> And just see how that might affect your decisions or your priorities or even your joy that you might have and just your sense of purpose that you feel. So it's pretty cool. Okay. And keep the first things first. We're going to keep coming back to that. Keep the first things first. And now every time you hear that song, you're going to think of Bible study. So you're welcome. I'll pray. And then as always, you guys are free to hang out or free to go home and go to bed. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the marvelous privilege it is to be a part of the royal priesthood. I know we have not really an inkling of what that means, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of, of even what a small amount of what that entails, Lord. Uh, I also pray, God, that maybe in some small way we can do our, our purpose justice. Uh, Lord, that we can live for you, that um, you will be honored and you will be glorified. And I pray that as we have opportunities this week to tell others about you, to give you glory, to proclaim your excellencies, I pray that we will not shy away from them, but we'll take them and uh, we'll be bold in our faith and give you the glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Okay, you're welcome. So next week we're gonna do. So now you're gonna finish chapter 19 for next okay. week. Okay. So I already got you started on day two. Okay. So you just have a couple questions left if you want to answer those, and then you're gonna make your rest of the way through chapter 19, okay. which is really cool. God descends on Mount Sinai, and it is fire and thunder and it shakes and his presence is just awesome (laughs) so we'll talk about that next week okay yeah